Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Joe Morris, Principal at Control Risks, which is a business intelligence practice. Joe, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Great to be with you. So I thought this would be a great time to open up the conversation as we sort of talk about all the challenges that come as super funds start to move overseas with due diligence and various issues of corruption, of bribery, forensic investigations. Joe, maybe can you give us a backdrop to sort of the issues that, that come up as, as a fund starts to invest internationally? Yeah, so you've mentioned some of them already around governance, corruption, bribery, etc. I think what's interesting to me is investing overseas for Australian pension funds is nothing new. It's It's been happening for, for years, but it's tended to be largely in developed markets. So things like developed market equities, in, in real estate, in infrastructure. Australia is a pioneer globally in infrastructure investing. I think what, we, what we've seen and what we expect to see in the next few years with Australian funds is investing more in emerging markets. And that's where the kind of challenges you talk about are likely to come up. So somewhere like Latin America, Brazil, India, China, et cetera, the risk issues in these kind of markets, they tend to be a lot less black and white than in a developed market. Things are more opaque. There's a lot less information on how a business is run, how how it was funded, how it continues to be funded, et cetera, how it interacts with government in many cases. That's often a big focus for the companies that we work with. They want to understand to what extent is the company reliant on government licenses, et cetera, because in in many of the countries we're talking about, politics and business are, are intertwined to an extent that they're they're really not in a market like Australia or the US. As you think about these funds, particularly in Australia, historically they've had teams that are locally based and they've done most of their investments with mandates and, and allocated, but as their size has grown, they're starting to bring these investment teams in-house. At the same time, they're starting to look to emerging markets for opportunity. How do you go about that process to try and help these funds identify the risks as they move into new lands that they probably haven't looked at previously? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the example of some of the Canadian pension funds is a good good starting point. So, And I think there's similarities with, with Australia as well. So the Canadian funds that we work with, they are inherently risk aware. They're often quite cautious. They are very deliberate in terms of setting a strategy on the, the markets and the asset classes they're going to invest in. But at the same time, they are going big in some cases into emerging markets and into, into infrastructure. And I think that description is probably a description you could you could apply to most prudent investors. I mean, all, all investors are, are risk aware. But our job working with with funds starting to look at emerging markets isn't to tell them this is the market you should invest in, this is the kind of asset you should invest in. It's to help them understand more broadly what the big picture risks might be. So if they if a fund comes to us and says they are looking at opportunities in three Indian states, for example, we will then through a process of sitting down with them, help them understand um, if you're looking at those particular locations, these are all the things you need to consider bearing in mind your timeline, your risk appetite, et cetera. Are they typically doing these investments by themselves or are they working with other 
uh, asset owners as they move into these types of investments? Yeah, it's a mix. So often it's co-investments, but actually in the case of some of the some of the Gulf funds, some of the Canadian funds, we work with some of the Singapore sovereign wealth funds, they are making these investments themselves. So writing fairly substantial checks for some of these kind of um, infrastructure assets and doing that, doing that themselves. So they really need to get that granular understanding of what essentially what could go wrong what could affect their investment over the course of what's often a very long investment. If you're investing in toll roads, airports, et cetera, you could be talking 10, 15, 20 years, which is a great fit for a super funds investment horizon, but also means you really need to project quite a long way into the future in terms of what could go wrong. Do they use any local partners or any local asset owners or managers maybe to, to also partner on some of these deals? In some cases, yes, but actually a lot of the Certainly the, the work that we get asked to do and the transactions we get, get asked to support on, they don't have the benefit of a local manager that they're working with. So they a lot of the time, they may have a an office in the region. So they may have an office in Latin America or, or somewhere in Asia, but they don't have the level of on the ground understanding and kind of access to information that they might might like, which is where we try and try and help them. So you mentioned about the Canadians, the Gulf Fund, Singapore, that they've been sort of the first movers in this space. What are the opportunities that they've been seeing and maybe what specifically they've been looking at? Over the past, let's say, five years, the Canadians, um, investors from the Gulf, Singapore, they've definitely been have the first mover advantage. So if you take India, which I think is a, is a great case study for the opportunity itself, for the broader emerging market opportunity, India has attracted something like well over $30 billion of investment from the aforementioned uh, Canadians, Gulf, et cetera, just over the past five years. And still India needs something like $1.4 trillion of investment in infrastructure over the next five years. So the need isn't going away. If anything, it's it's getting bigger. And it's, it's only going to increase when you look at the impact of the pandemic on state finances, government finances in many of these countries. There's obviously been a big hit to state revenues and what revenue governments have, they're going to prioritise things like social spending, welfare spending. So there's, in our opinion, at control risk, there's going to be an ever, ever increasing need for outside investment. So the kind of opportunities that our clients are looking at, they range from opportunities in places like Mexico, Brazil, Chile, Eastern Europe, even Western Europe in some cases, we see a lot of interest in infrastructure assets in Spain. And then closer to home, still a lot of interest in China, although growing nervousness around China, as you might expect with what's happening at a geopolitical level. And India, again, as I mentioned, is a huge focus for many of our clients. And the kind of opportunities they're looking at span airports, renewable energy, electricity networks in some cases, logistics, the, there's a whole theme around e-commerce and, and the logistics that goes alongside that. So it's quite a range. It's a range both in terms of the kind of assets and the countries, but there's common themes as well. Some of the things we touched on at the start of this conversation in terms of some of the risks that, that our clients need to understand. Are these opportunities that you're talking about, are these greenfield or are they brownfield projects? Yeah, they're often greenfield. So in some cases, new renewable energy projects, green energy projects, et cetera, new on the logistics side, warehouses, distribution centers, et cetera. Still some, some existing assets thrown in there as well, but a lot of the work we do is, is new developments, new assets. 
And before we sort of look maybe at some of the detail around the the challenges that come up, is there a particular structure, like a capital structure to these investments in terms of trying to address some of the risks that are there? Yeah, that's a great question. So, and again, I'll probably I say this a lot, but it's a, it's a real mix. So we've supported some of our clients on bonds issued by state governments in places like India. So they're acquiring those, our clients are acquiring those bonds. On other occasions, the uh, is, is a different structure. It may be equity, it may be, may be debt. I wouldn't say there's a definite pattern in, in the work, we in the transactions we support. Maybe if you could give a bit of a backdrop to what are the issues that come up? It's impossible to predict how things are going to play out over a five, 10 year time frame in any country, but you can foresee some of the things that may may happen. So we come at it from that point of view. We're not going to tell you exactly what's going to happen when, but we're going to tell you all the things you need to think about and understand what could go wrong. And then through that, you can go through a process of, of mitigating those things. So I think about a case in, in India, some work we did in India a couple of years ago for a pension fund, and they were looking at opportunities in three or four different states in India. In the context of this, and this is something that applies to many emerging markets it's not unique to india but someone once gave me the advice that the biggest mistake people investing in india make is assuming that there's a place called india when in reality there's 29 different places called india e.g 29 different states and each of them have their own politics their own regulations their own risks their own security issues and understanding that is crucial because you could understand india from a federal kind of macro perspective but lose a lot of the difficulties and nuances that that play out at the state level so in this case for um this pension fund client looking at india they were looking at infrastructure assets in in three or four different states as i say and they came to us trying to get that really granular understanding of risks in each state so it was things like what are the state financing risks what are the state finances like? How healthy are they? If we invest in bonds, are we going to get our money back? Are, we, are they going to be repaid? Or is there is there a repayment risk here? Likewise, contract risk. What's the what's each state government's track record in terms of honouring contracts? We looked at things like the government's track record on public infrastructure. So have they previously commissioned, successfully executed large-scale public infrastructure? Have they done that successfully? Have they run into problems? And if they haven't got that track record, what have they done to address it? So have they put in place individuals? Have they brought on board people who have that experience and can can provide some level of guarantee that what they say will be be done, will be done? And then we look at things more around the integrity side of things. So what's the environment in that particular state and within the government in terms of issues like corruption, integrity? What level of risk might there be of our funds being misappropriated and then we look as well increasingly actually like all investors we increasingly are asked to look at things like esg issues so that might be issues like modern slavery in the supply chain it might be getting a better understanding of if you're funding the development of an airport which may take several years what kind of conditions are the people building that airport living in are they likely to be paid on time are they In the case of the Gulf, we've done some really interesting work for investors, helping them understand the conditions that workers are are living in, looking at issues like are their passports being withheld from them? Are they able to remit money to their families on time, right down to the level of 
visiting workers in, in dormitories, et cetera, and interviewing them to understand how things play out on the ground. So that's a fairly typical example of the range of questions that we get asked. And then there's slightly bigger picture questions around government policy, regulation. So how stable, if you're dealing with, with a particular government or a particular state government, they may be very, very positive towards your investment and very keen to attract your capital. But will that be the case if in four years time that government gets voted out and replaced by a different colour of government? Is there going to be consensus on, on your investment? The other area we often get asked to look at is more specifically around individuals. So in many cases, a government will establish a particular government agency to oversee a big infrastructure project or a, or a series of infrastructure projects. And in those cases, we might be asked to look at who are the people staffing that agency? What are their backgrounds? What's their reputation in terms of their integrity, their vulnerability to corruption, et cetera? What's their attitude to foreign investment? Have they got a track record of working with foreign investors? All those kind of questions, which collectively will give you a much better understanding of how things work and will ultimately, we hope, make, enable you to make a better decision on, on that opportunity than if you didn't have all that information at your fingertips. And how long do you need to then be on the ground to look into some of these these issues? Because they don't seem like the sort of things that you can fly in, fly out. Yeah, I guess you're right. So for a lot of our clients who aren't on the ground, this is one of the ways we can help them. So a lot of the time we have people permanently based in these countries. We have people based in India, in Brazil, in Mexico, who are doing this work day in, day out. And actually, even when they're not working on a specific opportunity, they're spending their time researching these kinds of issues. So it's not something that can be done overnight, but it can be done in the course of, of a month or so. And the other the other point I'd highlight is a lot of this depends on having a network in each country and knowing the right people to ask questions. Because I talked earlier, I think, about a lot of these markets being opaque and they're not being the information you might you might want to to have available on them. But actually, scratch beneath the surface, and there's often a huge amount of information available. And often, in fact, the challenge is sifting the good information from the bad information. Once kind of people start to talk and share their experience, there's actually a huge amount out there. So part of the, the skill, if you like, is distilling all that and, and getting it to a place where it's, it's going to help the client make a decision rather than just having them drown in the multitude of information. Oh, look, it's, uh, I can see definitely the, the challenge of it, particularly when you start to look into things like anti-bribery and anti-corruption consulting. One of the biggest challenges is that this, this often doesn't, you know, it's not so public uh, and you need to spend a lot of time to try and identify it. Uh, we've seen that, that issue, particularly in Brazil, with, with a lot of money laundering going on at, at even the top parts of government. You know, how do you sort of make sure that you, you are attuned to, to what's going on there? Yeah, so Brazil is a great example, actually. So there's been a huge, known as the car wash scandal over the over recent years, that's embroiled hundreds, thousands of companies, including foreign companies, um, many, many politicians, etc. And there's there's a similar issue brewing at the moment around around money laundering in Brazil. So our our job, if you like, is to make sure we are plugged into the right people who can who can help us understand that story and how it impacts on particular sectors, particular countries, because that's that's another point. Some of these bigger picture trends, so in the case of Brazil and the car wash issue, that was um, extremely significant for the construction industry, for example, but for maybe other industries, 
perhaps tech, it might be less of a less of an issue. So helping our clients to understand that is important. And then, as I say, having access to former prosecutors, maybe former governments, to academics who cover the issue. A lot of the time, our aim in a in a project looking at something like that is to identify all the people in in that university may be able to comment on it and have a view on it and try and essentially get a 360 degree view of what's going on rather than just picking up the paper reading reading the last year's press coverage on it which will give you an angle on it but it won't give you the real um on the ground understanding of what's going on well that's also one of the challenges that sort of comes up that once once these funds make the investment and it goes post-transaction how do you sort of make sure that you've got smooth sailing that continues? Because sometimes these issues are are brewing under the surface for quite a long time. And so you need to keep an eye as to, to what is happening, particularly for things like even social unrest, organized crime. Yeah, absolutely. I think anyone investing in emerging markets, they need to understand exactly, to use your phrase, it's not it's unlikely to be smooth sailing, particularly if you're there for the long haul. It can be different for private equity type investments, which are a shorter time horizon. Um, but if you're investing in infrastructure for 15 years, 20 years, then you really need to understand what's going on, um, what might be coming down the track. And you mentioned there, I think, kind of having a having an ear to the ground. I think there's an example I can give you from Malaysia. So everyone now around the world has heard of 1MDB and the funds that were stolen from the, from the state development agency there something like $3 billion or more was misappropriated. That's something that now, as I say, everyone, everyone pretty much around the world knows about it. 10 years ago, that was known to a much smaller group of people, but it's a kind of thing that a company like ours has to understand and has to know. So if you talk to people in the real estate sector in Malaysia 10 years ago, there were rumors around what was going on there, what was happening, and that um, this was going to blow up into a big, big issue. In reality, it didn't blow up for two or three years after those initial rumors. But I think it's a good good example of how having people in country, having networks of people who are, who are looking at these things all the time can really pay dividends. It's an incredible one because it's one of those things where you have to take a decision on something that may not show its face today, but you've also then got to be, be aware of it and also then avoid these investments, which sometimes can be very attractive. Yeah, absolutely. So I remember I actually moved to Singapore in 2013 and worked on something very shortly afterwards that touched on 1MDB. And obviously every client has a different risk tolerance and a risk appetite. Some clients who you'd share that information with would say, okay, it's manageable. I think we're probably gonna be, you know, this particular relationship we're looking at will probably be concluded in 12 months. So we're not too concerned. Others would take a different view and not want to go near it. Um, but yeah, the point, the key point, I think, for for any investor is you want to have that information, and then you can make a view on it. You can take a view on it and uh, make a decision accordingly. So for us, we spend a lot of time looking at issues like that. Um, what are the trends in terms of enforcement around things like corruption? Are they changing? Is there a pattern, for example, of targeting foreign companies rather than local companies, or vice versa? Um, and then a big one for us as well is looking at the political and regulatory side of things. So again, how stable is the government that you've uh, initially done the transaction with? How might things change in future? And what we often do is look at particular triggers. So if you're familiar with scenario planning, there's often, there might be three or four 
basic scenarios or baseline scenarios that you work around, but then each one has a set of triggers associated with it. So a lot of the time for our pension fund clients, we'll be looking at things like, what are the six triggers to look out for that might indicate the tax regime around your investment might change, for example. So it could be things like a local election, a by-election win for an opposition party. It could be a particular issue getting traction in the popular press. But the role, our role there and the role of the client as well is to understand those triggers and understand what they mean and what the combination of them mean and then position themselves accordingly. So yeah, although a lot of our work is done in the run-up to the transaction, we also do a huge amount in the months and, and years afterwards, helping our clients to understand how things might change. It's interesting you talk about triggers and I think maybe the initial interest for people when they hear that is they think, well, hold on, trigger must be some sort of a negative trigger. But are there also positive triggers where you can see real change where there are a lot of opportunities will come because of a change of government or because of a change of tax policy, for example? Yeah, I'm glad you raised that actually because there's often a perception that people like like us and, and control risk, we're, we're only concerned about the risk. Actually, our mandate and our mission is to help clients do business and to succeed and to seize the opportunities. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of cases where there may be a, a downside scenario with associated triggers, but actually there'll be an upside scenario that has a whole set of different triggers. And we will monitor those just as keenly to, to help the client position themselves for when things might change. So I guess for Australian funds specifically, you could probably build out a scenario around India exactly that. So. Some funds might not want to to invest in Indian infrastructure just yet, but they might be looking for certain triggers that suggest that it's becoming more of an attractive proposition. Um, if I think about it now, one of those triggers might be just a couple of weeks ago, the Indian government announced tax exemptions for pension funds and for sovereign wealth funds investing in the country. That kind of thing suggests the kind of direction of travel is positive. But yeah, it'd be interesting to build out a whole scenario around that kind of thing specifically. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that most of the conversation, I think we, we've got a bit of a backdrop around this being a focus on private assets. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess with private assets is always a bit of a trickier one. You don't have the liquidity, you can't get in and out. You know, how much work do you do in the, in the public space or the listed space around debt or, or equities? Yeah, we, we do quite a bit, but not as much as we do on private markets and, and private investments. And I think the reason for that is it's probably fairly fairly obvious there's a lot more disclosure around public publicly listed companies it's easier to get information where that isn't the case so if i think about an example of indonesia and the, the stock exchange there it's often the case that companies will nominally be floated on the exchange but actually the free free float is pretty pretty tiny and the company is ultimately operated and run for the benefit of the the founding family with lots of dubious transactions to related parties, et cetera. So that's the kind of opportunity, shall we say, that we do often get asked to help our clients understand. More, more generally, we get asked to do a much shallower um, kind of review of public companies for the reasons I, I mentioned. It doesn't tend to go into the level of, of depth that, a, that we would for a private investment, but where there's concerns around conflicts of interest and related parties, transactions they they can be very interesting pieces of work 
a little bit more specifically on on sort of the ESG issues that we sort of touched on. Obviously, that's become a really big issue for the Australian super funds. They're quite now concerned about it, and, and they need to also report for their members. What do, what are you specifically looking for, maybe across that that framework? Yeah, so at Controvis, we we've always done ESG work, but probably it wasn't until the last few years that people would have called it ESG work. So we've long looked at governance issues like I've talked about, corruption issues, et cetera. Um, we do a lot around the S in ESG, so the social side of things, whether that's workers' rights, um, whether it's um, corruption, integrity, et cetera. And even on the environmental side, so we're not the guys kind of going out and testing ponds of water with pipettes and things and those kind of environmental monitoring. But we do get asked to do a lot of work particularly around questions like greenwashing, for example. So a company might make a big song and dance around having hired a big compliance team and they have made a public commitment to doing X. So I think about things like logging in Indonesia and, and forestry. Companies will often make a statement around deforestation and, and changing how they operate. The question investors ask us then is, how genuine is that? So they've hired a team of 20 compliance specialists are those people actually doing meaningful work are they out in, in, in the field making a difference or are they just pay, being paid a nominal sum and actually they're they're not doing anything genuine those kind of questions are for a lot of our clients get to the core of what they need to understand because it's very if you get the esg side of things wrong the reputational damage is is huge and can last for for years so you really need to understand exactly what's happening as opposed to just taking the the party line from the company at face value. What are the sort of changes that you're seeing around the world, particularly maybe in emerging markets that are potential risks or, or even potential upsides that this COVID environment is putting forward? Yeah, I think part of the upside is, um, and this may not sound like an upside necessarily, but the strain on, on finances means that the strain on public finances means there will be more requirement, I think, for outside capital. And that should create some opportunities. I think when we talk to a lot of our clients, um, currently there's there's certainly nervousness, as you'd understand, around have things actually settled to where they will settle. So we've had plenty of clients saying to us, including pension funds, that they're happy to just wait a few more months, see where things settle. The old saying about they don't want to catch nobody wants to catch a falling knife. So what looks like a a bargain now might be even more of a bargain in six months' time. So there's definitely that sentiment. But I think to get back to where we started, I think there will be more opportunities for pension funds and for sovereign wealth funds to invest in big ticket infrastructure in, in emerging markets around the world, purely because of the impact of finance on um, government finances of, of the pandemic. A little bit more specifically, you know, how do you see the nervousness around China, particularly as the geopolitical tensions between the US and China, even now Australia and China is starting to amp up. Are you seeing more of a concern around the relationship of, of China with respect to different projects? Yes. So we certainly are asked more questions around China and that reflects the nervousness, I think, and it reflects the headlines that we all see every day, both here in Australia in India, which has its own issues with China at the moment, um, in the US. I think in terms of concrete kind of impact on our clients' intentions, we've seen less of that. And I think that's probably the right thing. I think the whole story still has quite a long way to go. And 
we certainly wouldn't advocate anybody panicking in relation to China just yet, but certainly it's um, it's rising up the agenda in the conversations we have. Last question, what sort of insurance mm-hmm. is available for, for investors as they look at some of these particular types of assets? Um, so political risk insurance is a big one, which many uh, clients will take to cover some of the things that might might transpire to affect their investment. We see things like special risk insurance, and there are certain policies available that will cover a whole suite of risks from fraud to corruption to cyber attack, um, all kinds of things. And those policies, they're, they're actually incredibly broad in their application, but they can be very useful in emerging markets because they cover a whole suite of things that you really hope don't happen, but they could easily happen. And typically those policies will cover the cost of bringing somebody in to, to investigate and resolve the issue. That's probably, when I think about insurance specifically, that's been the big change in the last few years. Some of those policies are quite new. It's not something that was available a decade ago, for example. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Joe. Thanks, Alex. Great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.